Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. It's produced by David Border Giles, Cameo Daly, Mike Limmerher, Matt Barlow, and myself, Timothy Neal. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and is supported by the Australian Anthropological Society. For some time here at the pod, we've been interested in talking to people who've left anthropology. So, people who trained as anthropologists, then for whatever reason, parted ways with it, moved on, did something else, but perhaps still felt guided by or identified themselves by being or having been an anthropologist. I guess we were interested in what parts of that training carry forward and in what shape and what that looks like when you're doing something else entirely. This conversation with author Keridwin Dovey, produced by Tim and with Tim and David in conversation, feels like one of the first offerings in that vein. Dovey studied at Harvard and NYU in the States right through to postgrad, and then she left. And since leaving, she's written fiction and nonfiction novels, essays, articles, profiles, and experimental texts. Her debut novel, Bloodkin, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Award and was also selected for the U.S. National Book Foundation's prestigious 5 Under 35 Honors list. Her second book, Only the Animals, also won several awards, and her essays and profiles, which you may have encountered in The New Yorker, Monthly, The Smithsonian, N Plus One, amongst other places, are also widely recognized and celebrated, both formally, like often making the best Australian science writing list and informally, like just enjoyed. It would be very easy to presage this with a colourful and punchy homage to her work, which, as you'll hear, is a product of an insatiable curiosity tempered by a very careful moral code. But something I found extremely compelling about this episode starts with the way that Dovey talks about parting ways with anthropology over a paralysis of voice that emerged over hitting this wall, which felt familiar to me and I'm sure is familiar to anybody who's done anthropology, of a wall of like, oh God, who am I to say anything about this place, about these people, about this phenomenon? I can't. By standing by this discomfort and even burrowing into it, Dovey found a voice that felt ethical and right and just through writing fiction. And I think that's interesting. So this episode opens up a lot of questions about ethics of representation and finding one's way in enterprises that are very much collective, whether ethnography or nonfiction pieces on people and their lives, and also the joy and torment to be found in writing. We usually ask people how they became an anthropologist when they come onto this podcast. Uh, But I think in your case, the more appropriate question is, how did you not become an anthropologist? I will start with the first part of that question and sort of just describe a little bit about how I um, stumbled into anthropology. um, And then I'll tackle the second part. But um, yeah, I think like so many anthropologists that I've met over the years, I grew up in a in a very um in a family who were always moving around and so from a really really young age I um was always the outsider 
or lurker kind of, you know, gazing in at a group of um, of people who, you know, already had established social order. Um, and so I think from a from a young age, I had been basically doing a form of, you know, field work, um, but didn't know that that was what it was called. And I had this eureka moment when I um, arrived at university in America. Um, I'd never heard of anthropology and certainly not social anthropology. You know, everyone's usually heard of archaeology, perhaps, or even physical anthropology, but I had never heard of it. And I'm from a family of academics, and I'm not quite sure why I hadn't ever come across <laughs> the idea that this field even existed. And I've been kept from you. It had been kept from me. It had been withheld. And clearly I hadn't earned the right yet to be, you know, initiated into um, the chosen few. But I turned up at an Anthro 101 class actually by accident um, on my first day of classes in the States. And it was like the heavens parted and I heard the angels singing when the professor started to describe that participant observation is a thing and, you know, that what fieldwork was and that the purpose of social anthropology was to try and understand how humans make meaning in their lives. And, you know, there was a sense of, oh, I feel like I've been doing this my whole life and now there's a legitimate way that I can continue to do it. Um, And also that idea, I think, of using your whole self as a research tool, um, which is so rare in any other field. You know, you're using body, heart, mind, soul um, to understand the things that you're going to understand in those situations. So there was a love affair for four years while I was at college um, where I just absolutely fell in love with social anthropology and at the same time discovered that I could combine it with my love of filmmaking. I was able to go back to South Africa um, every U.S. summer with a camera that the university, you know, they had these cameras that you could sort of just take with you for the summer, which was amazing. And so I ended up doing these very intense periods of fieldwork back in South Africa where I hadn't lived since I was 14 at that point. So it was kind of like, an again, an insider-outsider situation. And that's when the love affair started to fall apart a little bit because I had a really, really weird time turning up on what were these farms that, you know, it was late 90s, early 2000s South Africa. So in the post-apartheid transition and particularly around farms, there was this movement around black economic empowerment and the idea of trying to put some of that land back into the um, hands of the workers who'd been working that land and, you know, had often never been paid for their work, lived in a kind of feudal system where in the bad old days, you know, the farmer would often pay them in alcohol, um, especially on the wine farms where I ended up near um, Mm -hmm. Cape Town. And so it was a really interesting time where there was a lot of good stuff happening, but there were these, you know, it was still so recent, those changes. And I turned up on this farm where I'd asked farmers for permission to come and and film and actually live among the workers who still all lived, you know, on the farm. So their whole lives were based there. And I just was a white girl with a camera and I was a well-meaning white girl with the camera, but I um, very quickly realised on the main farm that the workers had never been asked if if I could be there. 
you know, very, I worked really, really hard to try and do all the things that, you know, you're taught to do as an anthropologist to try to account for your presence there and to make sure that it is welcome. But I was never sure, actually, if if I had overstepped a line right from the beginning. And um, so I ended up finishing those films. I mean, they were student um, you know, ethnographies um, or ethnographic films. And I was a purist. I mean, it was like, you know, fly on the wall, no narration, you know, straight out of Fred Wiseman's kind of playbook. And I, I learned so much from that, but I had this feeling afterwards of I'm not sure what just happened there was right. And so after I graduated from college, I ended up moving back to South Africa. So, you know, sort of as a young adult, having never lived in Cape Town before, um, but I felt like there was something I needed to explain to myself about that identity as someone who'd grown up in apartheid South Africa but, you know, hadn't lived there for a long time. And that feeling just got worse and worse. So it was probably two of the worst years of my life where I began to realise I had no ground from which to stand, um, whether to say anything or even to observe anybody else, um, and that actually the best thing I could do was get the hell out of the way and you know that Timothy Ash article you know the stories we now want to hear are not ours to tell I remember reading that at some point in that I think it was I think he wrote that in the early 90s but I think I only encountered it in that period and it was um, profound but it left me with a terrible problem I had a video camera and I had no no sense of what I could do with it or where I could be or what I could um what useful work I could really do. And so that was the beginning of questioning um, whether I could even be an anthropologist. So I did, of course, what m- many p- children of academics do when uncertain. I signed up for another degree <laughs> in social anthropology. <laughs> when, it, when, it, when in doubt. When in doubt, just re- re-enroll. Very, very quickly, re-enroll, you know. So I ended up mm-hmm. going back to New York University for a PhD in social anthropology and it was a program that had a certificate in culture and media, so there was a filmmaking element. But I got four years in and I actually ended up dropping out because I couldn't find my way. Mm-hmm. to, I suppose, overcome what I was experiencing, I suppose, as a crisis of voice. Um, and so I dropped out and I moved back to Sydney and I ended up pursuing fiction during that time, actually, when I was in South Africa, I first turned back towards fiction. I'd always sort of, you know, written but never taken it seriously. And it was actually out of a kind of desperation of trying to find a way, maybe hide from the, you know, realities of those responsibilities you have as a as an anthropologist dealing with real people and real lives. Um, but it felt like I could hide a little bit in fiction um, and still draw on some of those same, you know, instincts, but mm-hmm. kind of find a way to say something, you know, to use language in some way because it felt at that time like it was either that or silence yourself forever um which is a terrible thing if you have the impulse to want to be a writer to feel that at this very same time you should be silencing that and yeah so that's kind of a little bit and from then I I sort of was more of a fiction writer but kept getting drawn back into that feeling of what you know what fieldwork gives you and I think what I admire so much about what the work anthropologists do is that long-term immersive 
ways of knowing and learning and a deep, deep, deep curiosity and interest in the lives of, of others. And I know that that can be abused just as one can abuse the, the privilege of writing fiction. You know, you can do write bad fiction, you can write bad ethnography. But I just feel more and more actually, particularly in the world that we live in now with our splintered attention spans and the kind of the pace at which things go, that it's the slow work that you guys do, you know, sticking at these things and kind of being embedded in communities that is just so incredibly valuable. Uh, you, I, I really appreciate, you know, in, in some way you've, you've kind of encapsulated two different, uh, very different pictures uh, of anthropology that I think a lot of us hold within us. Uh, you know, there's the, uh, someone on the program descri- described it as a warm bath when they first discovered it and, you know, the, the, the holistic sense that you, your whole self could be an instrument and your relationship to the world could be the instrument. And then there's the, the, the anthropology of decades-long critique, you know, the, you know, the anthropology that lots of people want to let burn because of, of its institutional entanglements. So I'm curious, I had a student once say to me, uh, undergrad who knew, didn't know anything about these debates and sort of put it really bluntly, he said, you know, I think anthropology should be a social movement. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think it should be academy bound. I think it should happen everywhere. Mm. Ever since then, I've been asking myself, what is an anthropology that is, you know, that is not institution bound? What is an anthropology that's, that's not the anthropology so many people are claiming we should let burn? So I don't know if you have uh, a thought about the kind of anthropology you still do, um, or if you might call it that. Oh, that's a wonderful question. And um, yeah, I mean, I, when I was at um, New York University, one of the most powerful um, encounters I had was with the anthropology of science, Emily Martin, who basically sort of founded that um, that way of saying, you know, I will be doing field work. And she'd started out doing quite traditional field work in um, China, but then turned her gaze to the female body and her own sort of experiences of um, pregnancy, and then to these, you know, sites of, of, of kind of scientific practice where, you know, hard scientists like to claim they have no culture and that, you know, it is not human um, affected. And she was one of the first anthropologists to say, we can do really interesting work in these kinds of places. And for me, that was... If, I think if I had pursued anthropology um, in a traditional sense and, and continued within the academy, that to me was the most exciting kind of work that was coming out of it because it was a way of um, acknowledging that, you know, those power differentials are very, very hard to overcome, but that you could take that skill set and that tool set and apply it among people who could always tell you to piss off. But in order to do that, you had to embed yourself among people of equal or superior class um, status. That's dangerous, right? And really uh, confronting for the anthropologists themselves because they have to also understand that, you know, they are there um, on borrowed time and at someone else's, you know, word, they, years of work could go up in smoke. But I think the agility and the way that that shows the, the the usefulness of that way of seeing um, and questioning, you know, so many of the assumptions that the hard sciences have without it being an abusive situation of, you know, class and race um, differentials that are just too hard to overcome. That was really exciting. And at the time, there were lots of other PhD students who were doing great work on the anthropology of science. Um, like there was a guy who was doing his fieldwork 
um, in Bhopal on the um, gas leak disaster. There were people looking at um, twin genetics and nuclear labs and um, I just find found their work so exciting and I, I wanted to try and find a way to write about climate change adaptation and I but I just I never got there. I never fig, quite figured out what that would um, look like. And also to be honest, yeah. I got very confused by the theory. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I had three years of coursework in that American yeah. program, which I know is quite different to the Australian PhDs and I actually think sure. American, PhDs can be very confusing because after three years of hardcore social theory, like three different classes every semester for three years, I didn't know what I thought anymore. And I suppose in talking about this crisis of voice thing, like it actually made it a million times worse. Mm. So there's always that danger of, you know, um, theorizing too much before you've let people who are just, you know, still taking that warm bath in what anthropology can be, um, letting them experience everything that's good about it and, of course, the limitations, but before, you know, you crush them with the theory of, um, you know, all the, the reflexive turn stuff, which was so important, but also hmm. it, it's really hard, right? Like it, and all of us would be struggling with that every single day. And writers yeah, too, I... so it's a different kind of problem, but it's the same issue, Um that we're dealing with. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, what you've touched on there is a really interesting issue that I think all of us encounter and definitely uh, no graduate students who encounter this. We encourage people to read things that would, that, that make you sure that writing is a colonial relation, writing, you know, requires the capturing of the other and so on. If you believe that, then, you know, if you believe that in your soul and that that was the only possibility, then, how could you possibly write? Uh, and, and I think that's a that's a really interesting um, dynamic that you're pointing to, which makes me think: like, how is that different with fiction? Because one of one of our recent guests, Hugh Raffles, uh, he was talking about how when he's teaching ethnographic writing, he assigns a lot of fiction. In fact, a majority of what he asks students to read is is fiction. What do you see as kind of the relationship of fiction to a field like anthropology isn't is all fiction ethnographic in some sense no i i really think that that would do a disservice to both fiction and ethnography to 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 sort of make that claim i mean i do remember the first time i read clifford geertz and just the um you know, the most basic idea that I can remember, but around thick description and the way that he was talking about how anthropologists could use language uh, to understand, uh, you know, the symbolic aspects of human life. I mean, in, in that moment, I was like, oh, maybe I can be both. You know, maybe the, these two things are completely the same. They're just about sort of different shaping of the text. But the more that I've done of the fiction stuff, I think at its core, there's a different moral pact that you have as an ethnographer compared to as a fiction writer. And the controversy that was um, around Inga Clendinen and Kate Grenville um, back in 2006 has really helped me actually think through why I now think that way. Um, so when Kate Grenville published The Secret River in 2006, Inga, who was a you know, a famous Australian historian and had written about that same period of early Australian um, settlement, kind of went after uh, Kate um, uh, in that novel, in her historical novel, and um, 
they ended up having this quite public sort of debate around what are the the responsibilities of a historian versus a novelist. And Inge w- made the point that, you know, historians have a moral pact with the past. And she believed that using her imagination and empathy were actually not allowed, that those would get in the way of her really doing justice to the past. Because, of course, empathy and imagination are products of our own cultural surroundings um, as much as anything. So she was determined to keep the past strange and to allow it to remain strange without that relatability that, you know, we often expect to have when it comes to historical fiction. Whereas Kate Grenville said that, you know, the novelist, the only pact a novelist really has is to the reader. And that's not to inform them or to you know enlighten them or to educate them it's kind of just to delight them um maybe to disturb them but you know to it's it's a very different kind of agreement that you're making um that doesn't mean of course that there aren't ethical responsibilities of writers but i do think if we try and hold fiction writers to those same standards then um we kind of lose that freedom that fiction has always given us to step outside of the other you know ways of knowing what it is to be human and the kind of experimentation that I think is at the core of most um, great fiction would perhaps you know collapse but I say this as if I've solved this question for myself and I haven't because I suppose another kind of backflip I've done in order to wiggle my way into a tiny space from which I can speak is that I tend to use the form of fables and allegories or that's certainly in my fiction the forms in which I feel most comfortable Um, and it was actually the very first novel that I wrote when I was in that terrible time in Cape Town was a fable because I literally didn't set it anywhere so ethnography is so located right you cannot write an ethnography without writing with your feet on the ground in a particular place about a very particular people it's the particularities that make it come alive and that make it meaningful and what I did in that first novel which is sort of you know says a lot about what I've then subsequently tried to do I said it in an unnamed country in an unnamed time there's not a single cultural marker on any of the characters they're given the, these, you know, I just call them based on their professions. Um, and so it's got a kind of like, it's a nowhere place. Um, I'm not sure anymore if that worked. Um, like I, I can't look at that book anymore. But, um, and I was definitely just sort of channeling J.M. Kutsia and um, waiting for the barbarians. It was basically just like, you know, fan fangirling over him. But there was something so liberating in, in stepping out outside of the bounds of realism and not having to write from a located place. And it was the only way I felt I could say anything about humans. And then that mm. kind of continued through into um, a book I wrote many years later after many failed novels went under the bed because I kept getting stuck in realism. Every time I tried to start writing creating a character I was back in that same crisis and so eventually sort of wrote clawed my way out of it by writing these 10 short stories from the perspective of dead animals (laughs) because that seemed like a good idea you know (laughs) which I was I wanted to get to because they are all historically located and very 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 much so so I first came to that 
to your work in general on the recommendation of another anthropologist, Eve Vincent, as we were discussing multi-species ethnography, this particular branch of uh, anthropology that's now very, you know, very much flourishing. But when we were talking about it, you know, which only was probably six or seven years ago, was was on the up. Uh, and we were talking about how multi-species anthropology kind of treats non-human subjects and, you know, these questions that continue to plague people. Can we even write about or narrate the subjectivities in non-humans? Isn't it the kind of the height of colonial possession to try and inhabit uh, a non-human subjectivity? But yeah, you're, you answered in the affirmative uh, in that book, your 2014 book, Only the Animals. So you've kind of given us some sense of where that began. Uh, what do you think of that strategy now? Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, with that book of stories, Only the Animals, um, I feel very honoured to keep company with some of the amazing work that's happening in that space you know in terms of the post-human perspectives and decentering human and all of that but actually I don't think of the book as fitting within that work and it certainly wasn't written with that intention it was um, just again another way to trick myself into giving myself permission to write about humans and so it is not about trying to, you know, narrate those other subjectivities. Um, the, hum- the animals in the book are all languaged animals. I mean, they are channeling, you know, human uh, voices and ideas. Um, but really it was more about trying to understand what it is about literature and fiction, what it does in our lives and how it works. Um, and then beyond that, what it is about the empathy that fiction can, when it's done right, um, bring up in us. But then taking that one step further to look at what happens in places where the unspeakable has happened. And so many of those writers in those contexts have turned to having animal narrators and they found that they could only say what they wanted to say through an animal after this, you know, the unsayable has happened, it's like it lets them reword themselves. So I'm thinking here of, you know, Gunter Grass, post-war Germany, like so many of his um, narrators in that work, um, you know, he had a flounder and a rat, dogs, um, you know, and he was almost trying to recreate a German mythology that he could believe in again after that had been completely, you know, just crushed by everything that had happened. And same thing with Jose Saramago in Portugal. Um, He turned to having an elephant narrator in one of his books also to process um, what had happened in Portugal. And then, of course, my favourite, James Kutsia, was processing post-apartheid South Africa through his deep engagement with, you know, and again, he's not trying to get at the animal subjectivity, but he's trying to understand, I think, why is it that we can sometimes feel more for human for animals than we do for humans? Mm. And what is that radical empathy that we can experience um, for a different species when it has completely failed us and there's proof of that failure when it comes to humans all around us? Um, and so it was that perspective of stepping outside and looking back in so that, again, I suppose the anthropological urge of being the outsider looking back in and then at the same time, paying tribute to what literature can do and that it can give us a narrative of redemption, that it can take us outside of ourselves, quite literally away from the failures Mm. of the human into something else. And we can do it in a way that's earnest, I suppose, 
um, when you're using an animal narrator um, that would fall completely flat if it was human. And Jan Martel, mm. who wrote Life of Pi, said something like that, that we will forgive earnestness in an animal um, character or narrator in a way that we will never forgive in a human one. And so it's, it, all of that, there were just little techniques that I was trying to use again to get at what what makes people feel something with fiction and then mm. almost experimenting a bit with like can I make someone cry by making these animals die but around them is the kind of incredible human suffering that's really what I'm interested in in the book but I couldn't write it from a human uh, perspective and mm. yeah there's you know definitely uh, some of your reviewers have have really embraced the the trans species uh, element of your work. I, you know, I, I wonder if they're reading your work against your own reading it uh, there. You know, there's this the sort of they've claimed it as a you know re, uh, reifying the animal subjectivity that sort of thing. Have you do you find yourself in dialogue with them? No, because I don't read the reviews because it's just oh, it's too yeah, <laughs> it just messes with your head. Like in terms of again, uh, never writing another word again. Like read your reviews, and that's what. It's another way of knowing, yeah, knowing yourself through the other. Yeah, Yeah. reading your reviews. Yeah. Um, Can I ask you about the moon? Yes, of course. (laughs) Um, Just because it seems like, in some way, you know, you you're one of the authors for the uh, Declaration uh, of the Rights of the Moon, and you know, I'd I'd love to ask you more broadly about how you got into that. But first, uh, that actually sort of personifies the moon in the way that some of the you know the recent movements to to assign rights to rivers and to assign rights to to ecosystems does. Is there some sort of uh, commonality in across your fiction and your nonfiction there? Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's weird. Um, I did start quite young with the fiction, and so you know I've been doing this for twenty years now. It's, it's only really when you start to look, it feels like I'm just lurching from thing to thing um, in in my reality. Um, but occasionally looking back and actually thank you for asking these questions because it's, you know, otherwise one doesn't get an opportunity to think like that. But very, very slowly as you build a body of work, and I think that this goes for academics too, you begin to see the patterns that, you know, were not, you know, visible to you before. And I, I guess the only answer I can give is that, yeah, it's all part of these thought experiments that allow me to reflect on um, on human life. So it may seem very distant, but um, it's really actually about trying to understand now the emotional connection that we have to objects and landscapes in outer space. Um, and perhaps then there's something from that that one can bring back down to Earth in terms of changing how we, you know, approach environments here. Um, but yeah, I think it's just because it's it's like the greatest canvas for fable and allegory that one could really wish for. And now I'm at a phase in my career where I can sort of work in three modes. So currently with the space stuff, I'm able to kind of do the science writing stuff, which I suppose is the closest analog, uh, analog to the, you know, original kind of ethnographic impulse to look outwards and to try and sort of burrow into someone's life. But it's usually at an individual level. So it's usually profiling you know, an individual scientist, but someone who's doing something really unusual, but who allows me into their life and their wisdom 
And then what I enjoy about that is to then take that and make it as accessible as possible to non-experts. And that's perhaps, again, slightly different and why I'm not within the academy because I think I realized at some point that once I'd done that learning for myself, what I really wanted to do was not write a scholarly article about it, which has so much value, but what I really wanted to do was to speak to the general public. And so that kind of science communication, science writing thing has become really important to me because I love feeling like, you know, I'm starting from scratch when I'm researching these things, uh, particularly because I don't have a hard sciences background. So recently when I was interviewing all these astronomers who are um, protesting against the satellite mega constellations that, you know, SpaceX and other companies are starting to um, put into orbit. And I mean, I, barely know what they're talking about at the beginning and so that you know that place of discomfort that I think you know ethnographers put themselves in where you are the idiot and you have to be so good at just like asking the dumb questions over and over again and understanding that your own learning process eventually might be useful to someone else that's what I really enjoy out of that and then I'm working on fictions so I'm working on stories about space objects it's kind of a weird kind of sequel to only the animals it's going to be called only the astronauts and it's space objects narrating so that may be one step too far for most people I realize I mean dead animals was one thing but um I don't know if anyone wants to hear what the international space station has to say about its 30 years of existence but um that's where I'm at and then I'm making these short experimental films that are very weird that are about trying to understand emotion um and connection why we invest so much meaning in objects that have gone to space and what that is about I'm just thinking about the, an episode of Big Brother with the International Space Station <laughs> talking about the, uh, all the, the arguments it's seen over the years. I mean, if people want an example of that, you know, the the recent short film that you made with Rowena Potts, Moonrise, you know, is very much in that kind of area. The moon appears as this uh, this other thing that is not just animate but is knowing hearing you talk about it now it's it's a really interesting parallel that you you you're you're doing you've got these kind of creative works in which the the other the moon the space station is a subject and then these uh this non-fiction work that you do that is um i guess in some ways the people who might think of the moon as a subject you know uh, uh, astronomers yeah. and so on is that my way no off that's exactly my... right and i think that's what intrigues me about space is that I'm actually I'm not a space geek you know like I I'm not um doing this because I love space and I want to go to space and I'm doing it because I actually think we should not be going to space I don't think we deserve to go there and so the work that I'm doing is actually about trying to get people to think about space as part of nature we don't we sort of think of it as you know this void of nothingness and so that's again how we thought about the ocean 60 years ago it's the last global commons we have as humans that we haven't already stuffed up and so there's a kind of sense of possibility that perhaps if we can take some of what we've learned on earth and apply it to space maybe the moon won't get mined you know and maybe we won't crowd the orbits around earth with all of these you know satellites before we literally can't see deep space um Probably not, but yeah, I think it's just just sort of playing with that idea. Like it's very 
playful. And I think I suppose that's what I really appreciate about the art making is that there's stuff you can do there and that people are open to in a way that even in my nonfiction, I sometimes find myself tempted to jump on the old high horse, uh, you know, and sort of be a little bit moralizing or, you know, the outrage, you know, around something that's happening. But in in the fiction and in the films, you can't do that without making it a shitty film or a shitty piece of art. And it's that asking people to just inhabit the space of whatever it is without necessarily having to pick a side that I think perhaps is the most valuable thing that, you know, art is can do, particularly right now when we're all having to pick sides like every single day, a million times a day. I think it's like lets us just mm. put that aside and step into a, a different way of um, being and thinking. So, yeah, Inner Worlds, Outer Spaces, a uh, recent 2019 book of yours, collects together a lot of this nonfiction writing about the life and work of different scientists. And I guess I have quite a practical question as, a, as an anthropologist and as somebody who, you know, engages with graduate students who are setting up their projects. How do you find and seek out uh, the subjects of your nonfiction work and, and how do you approach them? What do you, what's the kind of, I guess, what's the pitch or what's the, what's the offer? That's, what's a, the gift? that's an amazing question. And uh, yeah, I mean, what I was saying earlier about just, you know, feeling like I lurch from thing to thing, I'm drawn only by my own curiosity. Um, but I'm, you know, I've been freelancing for a, a while and then had young kids at the same time. And so it's always been, you know, you know, the, the drill, like juggling all these balls. Um, and the beauty of the freelancing is that I had independence, but the huge downside is that, you know, it, it feels just very uh, unpredictable um, and unreliable. But all of those pitches always had to come from me. So I've, I've never really been assigned an a topic by an editor and, and asked to write about it. It's, I think, as a freelancer, part of the gig is that you've got to generate all of the ideas and be pitching them and then hope that, you know, an editor says yes. But in terms of finding the people, it's, yeah, I I, I don't actually even know. Um, it's a bit like these things, you know, these encounters happen or something just sticks in your mind um, and, I suppose, again, the pattern of the fascination is it's generally someone who's spent a long time doing something quite unusual that other people don't often understand the point or the meaning of, but that's so incredibly valuable. And so that, I suppose, would be my favourite thing to do is to then, you know, say to them, and I suppose the pitch is just, can I just eavesdrop on your life for a bit? And, you know, will you let me take that story which also probably feels incoherent to you and give it back to you as a coherent shaped narrative and I think you know that's actually what fiction does that's the you know psychotherapy that um that that I think we get from both reading and writing fiction is that bizarre feeling of being able to shape what feels like chaos you know that's that's the catharsis um and so I hope that maybe that's the gift is that you are asking them to share that with you and they get back a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end and that shows a progression in their own lives that maybe they didn't even know was there. Of course, the benefit of writing these pieces for a general audience, you know, so these are always for, you know, magazines or newspapers that 
So it's a piece that they can read and, you know, perhaps share with family members who haven't understood what they did and and there's that kind of feeling. I think what's probably pretty hard for, you know, anthropology students, particularly when they're trying to embark on the kind of long-term field work that's involved, is, yeah, what is the gift back? You know, that final uh, thesis, PhD thesis, when it's written up in the forms that the academy requires of that anthropologist is you know, often going to be totally opaque to the people who are in it. And so mm-hmm. it's it's a much harder proposition because you also don't really know what you are going to be finding. And part part of what you're asking those people to do is to join you in an, in an experiment that may go nowhere and they may not be in that final text at all. There may never be anything that they get back in any concrete way. But I suppose it's just... That's where a better understanding of what it is anthropologists do and why that work is important would help everybody Um, and in a kind of public anthropology way. And I know there's movements for that. Like how do we take those learnings and actually make them, you know, applicable? And there's so many amazing, you know, anthropologist activists who are doing, you know, all kinds of work. And every anthropologist I know is working at all of those different modes and levels, you know. It's not like anyone sitting in their ivory tower anymore. I think that is a really outdated notion of what, anthropology looks like right now I actually think it's the most exciting kinds of work that could be happening because it's always multimodal and it's always having to speak to so many different people but yeah I don't know what you would say to the student I suppose it's um also about negotiating you know ethics and permission and that seems so incredibly complicated in a way that it isn't for me when I'm you know just profiling one person it's you know, usually one person, and it's very clear what they will get out of it. You know, it's like I'm writing for this publication and it will come out in this form on this date. And I always give whoever I'm writing about, because I'm not an investigative journalist, I'm never trying to catch someone in a lie, I always let them read a draft, which is actually not general practice with journalism. And I suspect if I worked in a uh, mainstream place where I had an editor, you know, overseeing me all the time, that would be looked down upon. But to me, it's not just about getting the facts right. It's not just fact checking what they said, which can be a sort of farcical process in itself, but it's letting them see it in context and tone and make sure that given that they're sharing a life story often with me, that they feel comfortable with how it's presented. Um, And I don't know, maybe that's something, you know, I know with all the ethics boards and the um, various levels that anthropologists do that, I think, you know, they're so far ahead in terms of thinking through the ethicality of that research. But maybe it is about, you know, changing some of those rules. Like are people who are written about in ethnographies these days given a chance to read a final thesis before it's handed in or published in its final form like is that uh, is that does that happen now like is that part of the negotiation of how people's lives are, are represented I think increasingly that is uh, the human ethics and institutional review board as they're called in the United States kind of process you know is increasingly legalistic and 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 contractual and I think my experience in talking to others is that increasingly you are obliged to put things in the contract but not test whether or they're, they're feasible. So, example, for example, to your point, uh, 
promise that you will give people copies of your publications, but that doesn't mean that they're actually readable right. by the by your and interlocutors. And would you ever promise to to give them the opportunity to read it before it's published? You know, to actually read the text and and have the right to say, "I don't want it like that." I'll let David answer as well, but uh, I have, and it's often been really surprising that people who uh, I thought might find my account of them critical actually found it interesting, or people who uh, thought I, I, I presumed would find my talking about a certain issue confronting actually found it, saw things in it that I didn't, in my own account that I didn't see. And so I, I've personally done that a little bit recently, but I think, again, the field has a long way, including myself, has a long way to go in thinking about how to do how to find time for that and and, and the appropriate resources for it mm-hmm. and what do you do if if somebody disagrees if somebody disagrees on a matter of fact that's one thing but a matter of interpretation isn't that why you're an anthropologist is to yep. have your interpretation david what uh, do you what do you think well there's the question of what we do and what we are typically sort of institutionally required or encouraged to do yeah you know, i also think uh, most of my colleagues take the um take the time to figure out a meaningful way of putting their work in dialogue with others. But I think that's also increasingly difficult, you know, as we, you know, when in the kind of hypothetical village ethnography where you could go back to the village and ask, you know, elders what they thought, that's, um, you know, different from writing about a whole social movement and trying to sound out people in the movement. Um, (laughs) You know, I've definitely, I sent drafts of my dissertation to people in the movement uh, and uh, I, one of the people wrote back and said, this is rubbish. <laughs> um, not in the sense that he thought it was untrue, just in the sense that he thought uh, it was totally irrelevant. He said, I, I can't imagine anybody uh, taking the time oh. to sit down and read this. Oh, that's, tough. <laughs> that's tough to hear. <laughs> I put, so I was going to put that in the book and my oh, editor had to take did. it You out. should have led with that. Yeah, that's a great, a great Yeah. But, I mean, lots of other people read it and, and gave me positive feedback and, you know, had to balance all of those things. But it's partly, I mean, and I wanted to ask you about the question of genre. It's partly about the question of genre. And, you know, just as you say, you know, the gift that you give people is that you give it back to them in a format that's familiar and meaningful to them. And, you know, in my case, the academic tome, and I did my best to write something that wasn't only an academic tome, but still it's an academic monograph, um, that genre just isn't, doesn't have traction with people in the same way. So I've tried to, you know, do workshops and talks and podcasts. Uh, but, you know, the thing that's taken up most of my energy in the last six years has been drafting yeah. a monograph. And some of my interlocutors have read it enthusiastically and, and gotten feedback to me and some of them have looked at it and said, no, nah, <laughs> you're joking, I'm not touching this. Um, and then my editor made sure I didn't put that in the book. You know, I, I think there's ways that the, the the thesis as a monograph could be a much more open, porous kind of document where you could have responded. It's not like you have to cut that out of your work or, or change your interpretation, but you just make it a more multivalent kind of many-voiced thing as a as a as a, as a document. But it mm. would mean changing institutional structures and and procedure that is very hard to do. What all the circles around for me is a really interesting question about what do we do with what Susan Harding called like repugnant others or people we disagree with, people we find morally uh, repugnant within our field of study. And it seems to me that the different 
genres that you work in and have worked in have very different answers to that, right? Within uh, your nonfiction, uh, I, I, my experience of reading your nonfiction is that you don't tend to foreground people who disagree with your the person you're profiling, yeah. or let alone like morally repugnant yeah. people. <laughs> Whereas in fiction, morally repugnant people are a, are a great generator of you know action, energy, uh, you know narrative mm. force. Maybe this is just like a, a comment, but what do, what, what do you think of that in terms of your approach to those you, I suppose, those you morally mm. disagree with? I think this is actually just a very personal thing of like I am so conflict averse and um, actually terrified of of dissent um, and and I don't know if it's the people pleasing you know socialization I've had as a as a woman of a particular time and place or what it is, but. There's that, but then I think there's also a sense of a changing um, desire in me to not focus on uh, the repugnant other anymore, um, particularly in fiction. Um, it's something Ian McEwan said that, you know, young writers are all about nihilism and wanting things to fall apart, and then you get a bit older and you actually start to want to think about how things hang together. And I think mm-hmm. if 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 that's it's maybe just a giant excuse for not going into those places but I actually feel like I'm not interested in focusing on the repugnance and the darkness anymore in any of those forms I want to understand how things are fixed and healed you know um and and of course thank goodness there's other people who are prepared to stare down those you know into that abyss and and try and understand this seems like it might be relevant. Uh, a lot of us are sort of frustrated writers and we've been talking about writing but more about anthropology in the last hour. But since you have this experience of sort of writing across different genres, I would just look, I'd love to hear what you think about the craft of putting the words on the page and how that works different for you in different oh, genres. It's just the best thing, isn't it? I mean, it's the only thing for me. And I think that's what I've realised at this stage is that I don't really care anymore what kind of writing I'm doing as long as I'm using language on a daily basis. I'm happy. And it's also just that, like, incredible freedom. I know you're not specifically asking about fiction, but I know that, you know, there's there's ways in which your um, work overlaps, Tim, particularly is with you as well, and, and, and those experimentations into those other forms. And I think all anthropologists should embrace both because I think many of us have that same tendency towards, you know, the, I sometimes think of it as like being an echidna, that when I'm writing fiction I'm curled up in a very spiky ball and I'm selfish and I'm thinking only kind of like digging in this way and um, antisocial and, and it's wonderful. It's like a guilty pleasure and you can keep it that way if you then have this other way of being where you're flexing outwards and you're looking out into the world. But I think it's that flexing inward and outward that I can't live without either one now. And I think that anyone who's, you know, wondering, you know, if they are anthropologists, but they're wondering about these other, you know, forms of expression or whatever is just to do it and to embrace it and to embrace the freedom that it gives you from those burdens of representation as an anthropologist, like to find other ways in to say the things that you want to say, but to give yourself that permission. I think that is the fundamentally hardest thing that we can do, particularly right now. And then making it, I mean, fiction especially is is just, it's such a 
fun, fun thing to do because you're not accountable to anybody in that moment. Um, I can honestly say that when I'm writing fiction, it is this bizarre looping conversation with the self. And, you know, like we were talking about, that's the therapeutic kind of kickback, I think, that it has. So, yeah, um, we're lucky, I guess, also to live in a time when every kind of form is available to us. So, you know, we've got oral possibilities that didn't exist. You know, we're sort of in this golden age of audio, like, you know, even this podcast is, is a part of that. And then, you know, the visual possibilities, the filmic possibilities, and then within text itself, the many different modes that we could all be working in. So, yeah, I think it's just I want more anthropologists to be doing all of those things all at the same time because we all have so much spare time, right? I mean, it's, (laughs) 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 yeah, you know what I mean. But um, I think, you know, there's some really shitty parts to being an anthropologist and being an academic you know it's tough it's really hard work and it's tough right now and you get no credit for being an amazing teacher anymore even if that's what originally drew you to it but the thing that you get to do is to be hopefully still following your curiosity and experimenting in 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 these different ways and that's the the one gift back so you've got to keep the time for that, even mm. though everything else, I mean, the admin responsibilities and all of that in a modern university, it's its insane. But if you can just keep that one bit of space and time alive for the experimenting, yeah, I just think anthropologists will do amazing things. That's fan, uh, fantastically affirming and helpful. And I think also a wonderful note to close on. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. This one between author Caradwan Dovey, Timothy Neal, and David Water-Giles. This episode was produced by Timothy on the lands of the Rwandari people of the Kulin Nation, with editing from Timothy and Maithali Maher, with assistance from the other members of the collective, Cameo Daly, Matt Barlow, and David Water-Giles. It was made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association, and with the support of the Australian Anthropological Society. And if you have a chance, please don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.